0: Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. All right, big news. Just last week, we announced details about CanMed 23. And if you signed up for email alerts at canmedevents.com, then you were among the first to be notified. If you haven't signed up yet, be sure to do that now because there will be a lot more announcements between now and next May. Yes, that's right, CanMed 23 will take place May 15th through 17th at Marco Island, Florida. And CanMed 23 is going to be different from all previous CanMed events in a few very important ways. First, the name is a little different. It's now the CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit, which highlights both the nature of the breakthroughs being presented at the event and the inclusion of principles to fund those efforts. Second, CanMed 23 will be held at the Marriott Resort in Marco Island, Florida. This will give attendees like you the chance to fit in a little R&R at one of the most beautiful vacation venues in the world with amenities like world-class golf, tennis, yoga, massages on the beach, and more. Third, the summit will feature immersive workshops to bring you up to speed in the latest in capital markets, medical training, and deep dives into cultivation and laboratory technology. Now, although CAMED23 will be different in these ways, some things will stay the same. We will still feature world-class oral presentations in the areas of cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing curated by our CanMed Advisory Board for impact and importance. And we will continue to share that knowledge with the cannabis community via our CanMed archive, social media platforms, and of course, the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast. So even if you can't join us in Marco Island, you can still be part of the CanMed community. Head over to CanMedEvents.com today to see our updated website and learn more about the CanMed23 event. I hope to see you there. This episode, I spoke with Dr. Jeff Chen about conducting clinical trials on cannabinoid products. Dr. Chen is the co-founder and CEO of Radical Science, a health tech company generating history's first dataset and AI to prove and predict the effects of health and wellness products. Previously, he was the founder and executive director at the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative. At CAMED 2022, Dr. Chen presented results from Radical Science's ACES study, which was a randomized clinical trial involving 13 CBD products and 3,000 participants. The project was possible thanks to Radical Science's unique virtual approach to clinical trials, which removes many of the challenges that make them expensive and difficult to conduct. Topics covered during the conversation include the many challenges associated with performing clinical trials on cannabinoids, how a virtual direct-to-consumer approach overcomes many of these challenges, the value brands, manufacturers, and distributors get from clinical trial data, results from the ACEs study, the largest randomized CBD clinical trial in history, how Radical applied lessons from the ACEs study to design the Radical Spectrum study, and other minor cannabinoids that Radical Science is investigating in which have the most therapeutic potential. Before we get to my conversation with Dr. Jeff, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Planetary. Female-founded Planetary is truly plant-based wellness designed to keep you moving and playing. Planetary created a water based hemp extraction method and built a vertically integrated company with USDA organic certified products made from full spectrum stable CBDA. The answer for plant based anti inflammation is found in nature, beautifully harnessed with science. To learn more, visit planetary.com. That's P L A N E T A R I E.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jeff Chen. Good afternoon, Dr. Jeff. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Ben. Excited for this.
0: Yeah, I'm excited too, because we're talking today about a very important topic, and that's clinical trials. Um, I had Professor Matrulam on the podcast a little while back, and he was very passionate about the need for more clinical trials. And, you know, a- Anecdotal evidence is great, individual case studies are useful, but clinical trials are, are the best. We need good data to silence those who are opposing cannabinoid medicine and claim that there isn't enough data to show efficacy. So I know that your group at Radical Science is approaching clinical trials in a new way, and I encourage people to check out your CanMed 2022 presentation in our archive on CanMedEvents.com to learn more. Um, so to start, I'm hoping you can explain why is it so difficult to perform good clinical trials on cannabinoid medicines?
1: Sure. Well, the, the first thing to realize is clinical trials in general, regardless of what you're studying, are already gargantuan undertakings. And you're talking about high cost extreme complexity, and also a very slow speed to completion. A clinical trial can easily run millions of dollars, requires a team of very talented scientists and physicians, and can easily take years. So as soon as you understand that about clinical trials, then instantly you already see why it's a barrier to any sort of compound or product that, say, isn't backed by a large pharma company that has the resources, wherewithal, and more importantly, the experience to navigate a clinical trial. So that's the first thing to understand. Now, the, there's, this might be a conversation for a separate time as to why they're so expensive and slow, but a lot of it's, they're, they're, they're bureaucratic, there's a lot of regulations around the clinical trials, expensive personnel are involved, again, high-level scientists, PhDs, doctors. They often involve clinical trial sites, so now you have expensive medical facilities. The experience for people in a clinical trial is suboptimal, to say the least. So now you have to pay them incentives to put up with all the inconvenience and take potentially scary you know, experimental drugs, all these things. All right, now let's zooming in on cannabinoids specifically. What makes clinical trials difficult on cannabinoids? I'll focus on the U.S., but a lot of these also parallel other places around the world. The first thing is the regulatory classification of cannabinoids. When it comes to THC, it's a controlled substance. And so if a researcher wants to research THC, they need to go get special DEA licenses. And even after after obtaining those DEA licenses, they can only purchase those controlled cannabinoids from other people who have a DEA license to manufacture those controlled cannabinoids. When it comes to cannabis, THC containing cannabis for last 50 years, there was only one entity that had that DEA license. It was the University of Mississippi in the last, you know, six to 12 months, a handful of other entities have been granted those licenses. but so that's, that's the difficulty. As a researcher, i got to go through all these extra hoops to get that license. Once I have the license from the DEA, I'm very limited into who I can buy those controlled substance cannabinoids from. I have to store them a certain way. I have to install security systems. Even though there might be a cannabis dispensary across the street where anyone over you know, the age of 21 can walk in and buy stuff, I still have to treat this uh, like how the federal government defines it. When it comes to other cannabinoids, things like CBD, research is diff- difficult for a different reason. So when it comes to CBD, the FDA is saying, okay, CBD, while it might not be a controlled substance anymore after the 2018 Farm Bill, we now consider it a drug, like a pharmaceutical drug. That's because Epidiolex is a basically a CBD isolate. It's FDA approved, so CBD is a drug if you want to research CBD, you need to go through an investigational new drug process. And that process is both onerous for the researcher and onerous for the company supplying the product to go into the study. If it was classified as just a dietary supplement study, it's so much easier for the producer of the product to get the product up to spec for the study. And it's so much less cumbersome for the researcher. But as soon as the product has to undergo the research as an investigational new drug. It makes it very difficult, if not nearly impossible, for a vast majority of, in this case, CBD providers to have their product classify and be registered with the FDA as a uh, acceptable investigational new drug and in places a much more cumbersome process on the researcher. You do see this in other countries as well. There's a reason that Canada legalized cannabis and cannabinoids medically 10 years ago. How many Rigorous clinical trials have you seen come out of Canada on any cannabinoids. And it's because they still need special licenses from the government to research cannabinoids. And then the cannabinoids they can research have to then go through this, you know, more stricter process than, say, a herbal study or dietary supplement study.
0: Hmm. So it seems like a weird kind of catch-22 or chicken and the egg. I don't know which metaphor fits here, but... um... You know, the government is saying that, you know, we need more data before we can, you know, make this a non-controlled substance or, you know, open it up for more research or, you know, legalize it medically. But they're also making it difficult to do any of this research in order to make to to classify it that way.
1: That, that's exactly it. And there have been attempts to change laws to make the process easier. I haven't seen too much traction. On that end i know there have been bills presented in front of congress to try and change elements of this but even if you can solve the unique restrictions and difficulties that cannabinoids face until you fundamentally solve the complexities and the high cost and the slow speed of trials you're still not going to get the data you need on any sort of acceptable time scale and on any sort of acceptable uh rigor and volume of data to allow people to make enough decisions, appropriate decisions on cannabinoids. There's tens of millions of Americans using cannabinoids every day. And with the current pace of research studies, we might not have data for a decade or more to appropriately inform who should use what type and what dosage for what use case, who should avoid what type at what dosage, um, if they have other existing, uh, issues, for example.
0: Right. So we needed a new approach. And that's what you guys are doing at Radical Science. So explain how how you guys are approaching clinical trials.
1: So Radical Science, we imagine clinical trials from the ground up. The first area that we wanted to start was to ensure that we're not trapped by many of the same federal funding restrictions that universities are trapped by. And so this is why universities, even state public universities in states where cannabis is legal, they still can only... Follow federal rules, study federally regulated cannabinoids in a federally compliant fashion. That's because they take federal funding. Almost all universities take federal funding. So instantly you're eliminating the option for them to study things that, again, tens of millions of Americans are using every day. So we avoid federal funding, we don't take federal grants. And because of that, we have a lot more flexibility in studying things like CBD, for example, without an investigational new drug process or studying other cannabinoids from hemp, for example. Also, we wanted to address the cost, the high cost, and the slow speed of clinical trials. And to do that, we adopted a virtual direct-to-consumer trial process. So with the virtualization of it, we can eliminate all that expensive infrastructure, the hospitals, the clinics, the fancy buildings that many universities like to spend money on. We go completely virtual. And then when we go direct to consumer, the data capture is directly from consumers. I don't have a nurse or a doctor or a research staff having to interview every single person in the study, hand them a paper survey, collect their responses, then upload that paper survey into a computer, for example. I'm collecting data from them directly. So I've removed the intermediaries and expensive intermediaries, expensive personnel that were driving up the cost also streamlining a lot of the operational aspects of clinical trials, automating them with technology. It's another key innovation that we've done as well at Radical Science. In addition, we're vertically integrated. We don't hire some other firm to do our recruitment. We don't hire some other firm to do our analysis and report generation. We do everything in-house, from the design of the studies, to the powering of the studies, to the technology stack that uh, collects data and manages and oversees the studies, to the analysis, the reporting, everything we do end-to-end, and that's how we can also drive additional cost and speed improvements to our clients. And one other key innovation of radical science is that we're running template studies. And so we like to say that we've done for clinical trials what Ford Motors did for automobiles. Hmm. So 100 years ago, before Ford came along, you could get a car. It was just made to order, customized, and hand-built by a team of guys for a year or two. And it was only available to the 0.01%. And then Ford came along and said, you know what? Screw that. I'm going to build the Model T. It's a template car. It's going to have four doors, four wheels, and this type of engine. If you don't like that, you can go order your hand-built car. But for the 99% of people that this is good enough and this is appropriate, great. So we've done that for clinical trials. And so we don't do custom studies. You want a custom study, You come to us you say, sorry, you can go find one of A thousand universities and CROs do that custom study for you. But if you want a template study that's 10 times cheaper and faster, and you're interested in one of the template studies we offer, pain, uh, anxiety, mood, sleep, energy, cognition, fatigue, great, let's talk. We can turn this around in a way that's never been done before and and help you drive the R&D that you need, help you substantiate the claims that you need to your stakeholders.
0: Wow, that's interesting. And I love that analogy. So, so what do these templates look like and how would they differ from, you know, a clinical trial that's done in a university? Um I mean, obviously not not including the things you talked about with it being virtual and and all that, but just the 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 study itself.
1: So that's the thing. These studies are actually designed in collaboration with university researchers and professors. They consult with us in an individual capacity because oftentimes they're frustrated with with the fact that it's basically impossible to do these same studies at their universities. Hmm. And what these professors love to do at any one in academia, they love to think, they love to be creative, they love to analyze data. What they don't love to do is redundant bureaucratic operations and paperwork, which is now driving, you know, that's that's kind of like the hallmark of these clinical trials now in these university environments. Right. And so fundamentally, the design, the rationale, the controls we put in place to eliminate bias, they are no different than gold standard clinical trials run at universities. So, you know, at Radical Science, we're running blinded randomized placebo-controlled trials at large scale using validated outcome measures uh, and analyzing them using kind of gold standard approaches to, to biostatistics. So from that standpoint, the studies are the same caliber. It's just, we've been able to do them in a, in a process Direct-to-consumer, virtual, automated, streamlined to lower the cost and improve the speed. And then with this template approach, we furthermore save time. When you call radical science, I don't need to spend six months thinking of a study, designing it, powering it, building in our tech stack, and then going out to run it and being like, whoops, I didn't foresee XYZ issue. It's delayed now,
0: or Mm -hmm. the data
1: is not as great as it could be. I've already run this study 27 times. You're the 28th time I'm running it, sign the contract. It's ready to go. There's no anticipated delays. There's no unexpected mistakes that are going to come about. It's a, it's a factory line. So when you buy a Toyota Camry, it's going to work a lot better than when you buy some dude's hand-built hot rod in his garage and he's driving it for the first time to your house to deliver it to you.
0: Yeah, no. And I would imagine having that template approach too, and make it easier to compare one study to another.
1: In the long run, that's theoretically um, possible. Although that's not, that's not really an intended goal. I guess that's, that's theoretically possible um, in the long run. But also keep in mind with, with our studies, the data is all confidential to the brand. So the goal here is not to right. show one company is or is not better. With their approval, then yes, the template nature does allow you to look between studies somewhat. And the ACES study, for example, was one where all the brands specifically opted in to this aggregate kind of comparison across all of their uh, products. But otherwise, the the data, both the identity of the brands we work with and their specific study data, it's all confidential to them. We only talk about it if they give us permission.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And so I guess that's a good question too. So the answer is probably obvious, but what is the benefit of having this clinical trial data for the brands themselves? What can they do with that? Or what does that enable them to do that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise.
1: Yeah, I would say there's many different reasons that brands have come to us. And sometimes it's not just the brand. Sometimes it's the ingredient suppliers that have come to us to do studies, hoping that they can prove, uh, that their ingredients actually work. And therefore it's not a commodity. They can sell more of it, sell it at a premium price Mm. compared to other people that don't have that data or for some of these minor cannabinoids generate the first ever data of human effectiveness and basically create the market and demand for that cannabis. So Now the ingredient supplier or that distributor or the manufacturer of that product can benefit. But there's also the end stream downstream brands who also engage us too. And again, the, the range of options are it's everything from substantiating claims. That's a major one. You know, this, this ingredient or this branded product is clinically shown, clinically proven, validated, demonstrated to improve XYZ, to do XYZ. So you can't make disease claims.
0: Mm.
1: So you're not you're not curing insomnia. You are improving sleep quality. And that's where you don't invoke the FDA's position that this is a drug making a disease claim. Um, so claim substantiation is a major one. R&D is another major one, too. So we've run studies that are as large as several thousand people where the company is comparing up to, for instance, eight different formulations head to head, wanting to understand which one would be best to take to market. So you're talking about an R&D process that for, and this is not cannabinoid specific, any sort of consumer health product, their R&D is often like, let's come up theoretically with a product. We give it to a few dozen friends and family, get some anecdotal feedback. Feedback looks good. My aunt says it looks good. Great. Now let's go make a multi-million dollar business launch decision on this. Mm. Even though there's a very fair chance it could be placebo. So R&D is a big piece of, of this as well. And then other areas, I think brands, Also realize that having this data is valuable for them to go raise money from skeptical investors who see them at like every other company out there, hawking a supplement or hawking some consumer health product, dramatically raises their valuation, dramatically gets trust from investors. And in a similar vein, people who are trying to get distribution or retail, you know, you're one of 1400 ashwagandha brands that I've talked to in the last 30 days. What makes you different? Oh, well, we have clinical trial data, so you can know that you're exposing your customers to a product that's real. And by the way, our product can make claims. It'll fly off your shelf.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: those conversations become possibilities as well with the right data.
0: Excellent. And now in order to make those claims, does that that data need to be public somewhere? Do they have to publish it um, either on their website or in a journal or something like that?
1: Correct. So to make structure function claims, you do have to publish the data. The but publishing is a very broad sense. It just needs to be accessible by the public. So it could be a white paper that sits on your website. Um, it could be all the way to peer review publication as well. So some brands, after the study's ready, they're happy just to release it as a white paper on their website. Other ones want a peer-reviewed publication for an extra layer of credibility. So we will we have services where we'll help them and submit those um, papers as well.
0: Excellent. Yeah. And you mentioned the ACES study. Um, so I was ho- hoping you could talk a little bit more about that because that was, a, that was a pretty important study, a pretty large study.
1: Yeah. So the ACES study was the first study that we attempted as a company and we launched it about a year ago. And At the time, our, our company was pretty small and pretty young. Um, but it's it's uh, I think it's pretty impressive for, and speaks on, on my team that we decided, hey, you know, we're a company that's six month old let's just do the largest CBD clinical trial ever done in history, and let's get it done in six months. So that's the like, goal we set for ourselves, and we, and we pulled it off. So we had 14 brands join us in the ACEs study It involved nearly 3,000 Americans. And this was a, this was a study that was specifically intended to collect real-world data on the usage and outcomes that CBD products might be providing for the tens of millions of Americans using it. And in order to maintain the real world lens of the study, we decided to make it an open label study. What open label means that people got the product in a form that was not blinded. They knew what they were taking. And in this case, we wanted the companies to submit products in their natural form that it was already being sold on a mm-hmm. shelf. And Again, to mimic the experience of someone going on Amazon or walking to a store, buying a CBD product they know it's CBD. It comes in something that's nice and labeled, right? They know the company behind it. So all these things were meant to mimic the real world outcomes and therefore for us to be best able to approximate those outcomes. So we ran the study. We ran it for a month. We got nearly 3,000 Americans and the Americans were assigned to one of the CBD products and which they got in the mail or they were assigned to be in a control arm, where they did not receive any CBD product, but we continue to track their pain, their anxiety, their sleep, their well-being, and their quality of life, just to understand how it might change over time. That control allows us to control for the natural progression of these conditions. I'm anxious today, and without any intervention, what happens to my anxiety four weeks from now? Maybe it gets worse, maybe it gets better, maybe it stays the same. It also allowed us to control for macro environment instances. So for instance, if I was living in Ukraine four months ago, and you see my anxiety spike, if I have a weightless control group, I can be like, oh, it's probably because, you know, the Russians invaded, anxiety spiked across the board. I can now control and factor that in. When I look at this people on the CBD and I go, well, now, why is their anxiety getting worse? That's weird. Oh, that's right. A war broke out because mm-hmm. I can look at the control group. So it was important for us to have that control group. And what we found uh, was, and and we wanted products that have a variety of different form factors. We had soft gels and gummies and tinctures and sprays and dissolving tablets, and we had different spectrums. We had isolate, full, and broad spectrum, and we had different dosages too, again, just to get a huge Mm -hmm. um, representation of all the products out there. And when we analyzed the data, we found a lot of things. So we found that there were significant improvements across the board for anxiety, sleep, and pain. Anxiety had the largest improvements, followed by sleep, and followed by pain. And we also found that the largest improvements tended to happen within the first half, the first week or two of using the product. And then by weeks three and four, there were still improvements happening, but they were at a much more reduced pace. So think of it as like if this is their, uh, if this is showing the improvement in their uh, well-being, for example, you see in the first week or two, and then you still see it kind of increase. Um, I guess I realized I was just gesturing by hands as a podcast. So, so you see a sharper increase in the first week or two, and then a, a more still increasing, but more s- gradually sloped off increase sure. in the latter half of the week. Uh, we did some other interesting things. We looked at males and females, and we found that there were that didn't impact the experience of the outcomes. We also looked at whether people were naive, moderate or experienced CBD users, and we did not find that that predicted a difference in their health outcomes from taking CBD. And we also looked at age groups, and we also found that that wasn't a predictor of effect. So to recap, it seems that gender or moreover sex assigned at birth, age group and experience with CBD weren't predictive of whether someone was gonna have a good or bad result or improvement. Uh, we also analyzed the data set by spectrum and by dose of CBD. And what we found was that for spectrum, we did not find a, a significant difference by spectrum. And again, I'll, I'll caveat that in a second. And when it came to CBD dose, we did not find a predictable relationship that a certain amount of CBD was necessarily better than another amount. And if you look at, and that's not to say that spectrum doesn't matter and that all CBD doses are the same. More likely what's happened is that there was so much diversity in the products that the products differed in multiple characteristics. Right. And it was really hard for us to control for just, Spectrum or just dosage, we we tried our best, um, but I believe there still needs to be many studies to dig into this notion of what's the proper spectrum, what's the proper dosage. That's actually why we decided to launch these subsequent studies on CBD, um, that uh, to to fill in these missing gaps in the knowledge. So again, to recap, this is a pretty monumental study, largest CBD trial in history. We had a control arm. We enrolled nearly 3,000 people. We found that things like gender and age and experience with the CBD weren't predictive for health outcomes. We found that across the board, there were significant improvements in anxiety, sleep, and pain with anxiety, experiencing the most improvements, followed by sleep, followed by pain. And we also found that side effects were rare and very mild. About 10% of people in the study reported any sort of side effect and they were all generally mild side effects.
0: Great. Now, in those results, was there anything that stood out to you, or that was surprising, or that you didn't expect?
1: You know, going into the study, we—I—I had expected things like experience with CBD to impact outcome, hmm. and I also had potentially expected sex assigned at birth to also impact outcome because we've seen from preclinical studies that sex of mice, male, female mice, have differential experiences to cannabinoids. And actually, gender differences or sex differences are becoming more and more apparent across all sorts of health outcome measures. So I was a little surprised um, to see that. But again, this is an area where we probably need many, many more studies in this realm to really confirm what what we're seeing here. And, and I, I forget who this quote is attributed to, but any good study warrants many many more follow-up studies so this is just right. the first of, of blip on the radar to to give society a starting point with which they can layer on additional studies on CBD
0: well yeah and that's a great segue because you ha- are currently doing a follow-up study uh, radical spectrum and I imagine that you're applying some of the lessons learned from aces no
1: C- correct so radical spectrum you know in aces we 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 Had some preliminary findings on dose and spectrum. But again, we knew that because these products differed, not just in one characteristic, some of these products differed in form factor and dose and spectrum. Right. Um, So radical spectrum is a study where every company has to submit a minimum of three things to us. They're going to submit a placebo. Hmm. They're going to submit a CBD isolate and they're gonna submit a broad or full-spectrum product. All of these three submissions have to look identical, AKA same bottle, same form factor. And so the only thing that's differing is the contents, and then the isolate and the broad full-spectrum have to be the same concentration of CBD. So the only thing differing between them is the other stuff, the other cannabinoids, the terpenoids. And so this is a three-arm study with which at the end of the study, the brand can have several things sitting in their data set that could be useful. They can first off, they can have proved that their product works better than placebo for a variety of health outcome measures: quality of life, pain, sleep, anxiety, mood. They could also potentially have proved that their product works better than isolate. And if you look at the reason why the FDA says all these CBD supplements are illegal, is because they resemble CBD isolate, GW's Epidiolex. Mm. But this data might be some of the first data ever to show that these supplements do not perform the same as a CBD isolate. And therefore you might not be able to lump them with something like a Epidiolex from GW Pharmaceuticals. And maybe perhaps they aren't subject to a drug preclusion principle from the FDA. So, you know, the study is nice for the brands in that it allows them multiple things. Again, it allows them to prove their product works better than placebo, which for 99% of CBD brands, they don't have that those data sets. They can also prove that the product potentially works better than isolate. Um, and at the same time, the, the study allows them to do a dose titration so they can explore multiple doses of their product and simultaneously get multiple shots on goal for quality of life, pain, sleep anxiety and mood. So we're really excited about it. For now, it's the last CBD study that we're going to run. Um, We're still gonna run studies on other hemp-derived cannabinoids, CBC, CBG, CBN, THCV, et cetera. But the FDA is making it very difficult to even research CBD. So after radical spectrum runs, we're gonna table our CBD studies. We'll still be taking studies on other minor cannabinoids because the FDA has not said those are drugs for example. And furthermore, we're going to, we already have opened up our studies to non-cannabinoid supplements. So we're running studies on functional mushrooms and herbs and probiotics and nootropics and a bunch of other things, leveraging our kind of newly developed disruptive trials platform.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So first question I take it based on the way you were talking that the brands that are involved in the spectrum study, they're all broad spectrum or full spectrum brands. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then secondly, so is CBD, it's it's difficult to study because of that drug de- designation that you talked about earlier with Epidiolex?
1: That's exactly it. Yeah. So the, the FDA has, like starting many years ago, the FDA first started saying, hey, you can't sell CBD as a supplement. It's a drug. You got to get it approved as a drug before you can sell it. And now we are um, increasingly um, seeing that even the research of CBD is going to require an investigational new drug uh, process, which universities have been beholden to for quite some time. We've been able to do it thus far without it, but going forward, we're not confident we will be able to continue these studies Without that, so that's why CBD spectrum or the radical spectrum is our last study um, of any of our studies that allows CBD products to be enrolled. So going forward, we don't really have study slots or enrollment slots open to CBD products.
0: What about CBDa?
1: That gets a little. That could potentially. <laughs> that could potentially work. It's not CBD, so yeah. yes, that could potentially work if if there's a way that you can stabilize the CVDA and show that it's not spontaneously converting to significant quantities of CBD. And yes, that could work.
0: Interesting. Okay. And the radical spectrum is, will that data be made public or is that going to be at the discretion of the brands?
1: That's going to be at the discretion of the brands. Okay. So, um, but you know, so far most, if not all these brands have wanted to talk about their data because it, it helps, you know, it helps the industry. It helps their own brand. So.
0: Excellent. So, and before you, let, I let you go, because you did bring it up, um, you're, you're talking about exploring some of these other minor cannabinoids. Um, <clears throat> interested to know, um, I, I know you can only share so much, but um, what are you looking at in, in terms of, you know, those cannabinoids, which ones are you looking at and what sort of conditions?
1: So we've already, we've already run studies um, on CBC, CBG, and CBN, either by themselves or in combinations with other minor cannabinoids or in combinations with CBD. Uh, We're about to start launching a series of studies on THCV. Um, In terms of CBC, CBN, and CBG, we've been running studies on them for things like anxiety and pain and sleep for the upcoming THCV studies. It's going to be focused on uh, energy focus and appetite suppression. Um, And then there's Mm. subsequent studies as well that are going to involve minor cannabinoids, uh, for areas like quality of life and mood and libido and things like that.
0: Great. Right. And in which, in which of the minor cannabinoids do you think is sort of uh, the next big minor cannabinoid?
1: Um, look, honestly, well, how do I say this? They're all pretty interesting because we're all starting from ground zero. You know, whatever people state to be true or not true about minor cannabinoids, at least from human effectiveness data, there's not really anything to go off of. There just haven't been studies to prove or refute that any of these minor cannabinoids could help certain things. So we're basically doing some of history's first, not a sum of, we are doing history's first human effectiveness, randomized, um, blind to placebo-controlled trials to, to look at these things. Um, but one thing that I think is really interesting, just from, a, from the zeitgeist of the moment, everyone's talking about how you can get better energy. Everyone wants to take nootropics, all this stuff. So I think THCV gets pretty interesting where anecdotally you're hearing about these effects. We do have human studies on THCV's ability to improve blood sugar levels. Um, So it definitely is modulating metabolism. And so I get really excited that we're gonna launch these studies to see how it can really help with potentially focus, potentially with energy and potentially with appetite suppression. And if you think about a lot of things that Americans are grappling with right now, poor sleep, poor sleep, and you're fatigued mm-hmm. during the day, or you 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 have fatigue, or you have long COVID, or you're not, you know, you have you're anxious and you can't focus, right? So the fact that THCV could potentially help some of these areas, based on some of the the strong anecdotal data we're seeing, that could really help improve a lot of people's lives who are having and grappling with these issues and wanting better focus, wanting more energy and potentially wanting to um, suppress their appetite. Look, I fast every day for longevity purposes. For some people, that's not achievable. And other people might need to fast more because they have, you know, maybe gained some weight. And we know that excess weight is tied to a whole host of deleterious health outcomes from increased risk of dementia to cardiovascular events. Um, so I, I really hope that you know we'll see what the studies show and if they're positive. And these are tools that could really help a lot of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of potential there. All right, Dr. Jeff, before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to plug any websites, social media, or additional resources that the listeners could um, engage with or read up on to learn more about what you guys are working on.
1: Yeah. So Radical Science, we're here running disruptive direct-to-consumer clinical trials So non-prescription health products can accelerate their R and D and substantiate their claims. We can do it all 10 times cheaper and faster than anything that's been done before radical is spelled R I D I C L E kind of like particle. And that spelling of radical means the root of a plant. And that's what we're getting to. We're getting to the root of these health issues. We're getting to the truth behind all of these. Um, and so it's Radical Science. You can check out our website, RadicalScience.com, and you can follow us at Radical Science on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and you know, all the usual social media channels. And so if you're curious about learning about one of our studies, um, you can go to our website. You can contact us there as well. And some, someone from my team will get back to you within a day or so.
0: Excellent. Well, Jeff, thanks again for joining us on the podcast, and I hope to see you out at the next cam All righty. Thank you, Ben. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jeff Chen. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode sponsor, Planetary. Our next episode will drop August 17th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the new and improved CanMedEvents.com. The team really did an exceptional job updating the website with all the information about our CanMed23 event. And of course, you can still find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels in the CanMed Archive. You can also find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for email alerts to get all the notifications around this innovative, industry-leading event. I also invite you to engage with us on all our social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us improve our rankings and reach more listeners. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next at Coffee Talk.